I've been teaching about living the extraordinarily blessed life, and to do that, we've been talking about how that you must have the character of God formed within you. That's what the Christian experience is all about. It's God transforming you, speaking of culture, Jade, from the culture that we came out of in the world into the culture of the kingdom. The kingdom has a culture, and it's also a process whereby God squeezes out of us the old nature, which remains in us long after we're born again, because we've been indoctrinated. Our minds have been filled with all this stuff. We were raised and trained, taught, indoctrinated in a world that is fallen, ruled by a fallen Lord. To begin with, we're a fallen people because of Adam and Eve. And all of this stuff about loss and declension has been programmed into us, the principles of loss. When you come into the kingdom of God, you make this dramatic transition, and you now have come out of darkness into light. But what remains is the teaching, the indoctrination. This is why Paul writes to the church in Romans, who are already believers, and said they needed to have their minds renewed. And that's what happens. The Christian life is a process of getting the junk out and being programmed with the principles of God, the character of God as well. In Galatians 5, through 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. We're on faithfulness. Andrew's already taught <clears throat> one Sunday when I was gone. I let him move ahead to gentleness, the gentleness of God and how that needs to be created in us as well. But I have felt to stay on the word faithfulness for a little while longer. I'll preach today, and again, the next time I, I minister, I'll finish, finish at that point on faith, faithfulness. The reason I said faith is because the word faithfulness actually is the same word that is translated other places in the New Testament as faith. And to have faith means you're faithful. So the translator translated it faithfulness, but the actual word is faith, pistis in the Greek. And if there's anything that I believe is lacking in the church today, it is faith. The absence of faith is why so many people live lives that don't show love, don't show joy, don't show peace, don't show self-control. I mean, you live a little differently if you know when you leave this life, you're going to go to another world than if you don't believe that other world exists. Amen. And faith not only includes believing what the Bible says about the next world, but it also means believing what God has to say about himself. It is part of his character. God never doubts who he is. He's going to be God tomorrow, next day, next week, no matter how how bad things get in somebody's life or in the world he's created, how a man may mess things up, God is still going to believe he's God. And I want to talk a little bit more about faith. And so today I want to speak from the subject flourishing because God is growing his faith in me. This year we have been talking about planted, fruitful, and flourishing, or flourishing and fruitful. And I want to talk about part three, about God growing his faith in us. Father, do grow your faith in us today. May the lives we live as we serve you longer 
day by day reflect a more clear and, and certain change that causes us to move away from the old nature to embrace the nature of the God that lives inside of us. I ask it for your glory, and everybody said, Amen. The question that we come to now in this series is, how do you grow God's faith in you? I've talked about four kinds of faith, and the last being the gift of faith. How do you grow God's faith in you? Because that's literally what Jesus wants to have happen. He wants us to move beyond man's faith, natural faith, other forms of faith, into having his faith within us, the faith of God. That's what's called the gift of faith. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 4, Paul says, We're bound to give thanks, are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. I've capitalized that. Your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. As this verse points out, your faith can grow exceedingly. Now, it's a, sheer, it's, a, it's a sheer and simple matter of understanding the way that, that polemics work and, and, and statements are defined as truth to understand that if your faith can grow exceedingly, it can diminish exceedingly. And if it can grow exceedingly, it can grow slowly. And if it can grow slowly, it can diminish Slowly, Paul warned of people who, concerning faith and conscience, have made shipwreck. You want to mess up your life, keep doing the same thing over and over again until your conscience doesn't talk to you anymore. And you'll make shipwreck. You'll, you'll hit shoals. You'll hit reefs that'll take you down. The Paul, Apostle Paul says that similarly, when we allow our faith to be taken from us, that the same thing will happen. It torpedoes our efforts to serve God, and we don't experience the extraordinarily blessed life that he wants us to experience. And so let's look at the scripture once more, for the scripture is the source of all wisdom and truth, and I want to turn to the great chapter on faith, which is Hebrews chapter 11. It has been variously argued that Paul wrote Hebrews, somebody else said Apollos, somebody else said Timothy. I would argue that it's either Paul or Apollos, and I sometimes lean toward Paul. And uh, whoever wrote it had an extraordinary ability to understand the workings of, of Hebrew law and, and, and what that meant in terms of being a type and shadow of what was to come in the New Testament era. So they could take stories from the Old Testament, and which they knew very, very well, and all of the minutiae, the details, and they could extrapolate from that to tell us about the present nature of God and the New Testament era of grace. And the writer is doing that here in Hebrews 11 and 1 when he says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The first thing that I would point out to you is that unlike what people tell us about faith, faith is actually tangible. Most people feel it is an intangible quality, but faith is both substance and it is evidence. Both of those are tangible factors. The word substance here is translated from the Greek word hypostatus, which literally means a title deed or a legal document of ownership. What the writer is saying is that if you're believing God for something, you have faith, you already have the title deed of ownership 
that what you're praying for is going to happen. Mm. Amen. The word substance means that. In Hebrews 11 and 1, the Amplified Bible translates it that way. Now faith is the assurance or the confirmation or the title deed of the things we hope for being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality. Faith perceiving as real fact, you see that? Real fact, what is not revealed to the senses. When you understand faith, you come to realize that you don't have to see it for it to be real. It's real before you see it. Archaeologists have this fascinating story. They found the archaeological remains of a case, a trial case, involving a woman named Dionysia who lived over 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. It seemed that she had lost a case in a local court over a piece of land to which she had laid claim and not satisfied with the decision of the lower court. I'm going to emphasize the lower court. She determined to take her case to a higher court in Alexandria, Egypt, which was the capital of the ancient world at that time practically. And I don't know about you, but how many times have you tried to fight for something in the lower court and didn't get anywhere? And what I want you to realize is that faith appeals to a higher court. Mm -hmm. So she sent her servant to that city, the city of Alexandria, with a legal document safely encased in a stone box. And on the way, the servant lost his life in a fire which destroyed the inn where he was staying and had put up for the night. And now, 2,000 years later, the sands of the desert that had covered the ruins of the inn were pulled back, and the charred bones of the servant and the stone box and the remains of the inn were found, and the archaeologists uncovered these remains, and in the stone box they found the legal documents. And they read the note which this woman had sent to the high court judge in Alexandria. In order that my lord, the judge, may know that my appeal is just, I attach my hypostatus. And with that, it was attached to this note she designated by the Greek word that is used here and translated substance in Hebrews 11 and 1. When they looked, the attached document was the title deed of the piece of land that she had claimed as her possession. In other words, the substance, faith is the substance, it is the status. it is the title deed to what you're asking God for. The lower court may say no, but there's a higher court that's going to overrule whatever the enemy is trying to rob you of. When you own your home or a car, you're given a title of ownership. It belongs to you, and that document proves it. And let's say there are two worlds that exist side by side for the purpose of our discussion. One world is a world of loss and suffering and poverty and hurt and pain and declension. The other world is that one right there. The world of being extraordinarily blessed, of prosperity, of peace, of happiness. You were raised in this world over here. But when you come into the kingdom of God and his word begins to grow inside of you, there's another world out there. You don't feel comfortable in this one anymore. 
How do you get from this world to that one? Faith is the door that accesses the next dimension. Oh, I need somebody in the building to say amen. Faith is what causes you to stop living in the world of need and poverty and want and opens the door that causes you to live in the world of plenty and abundance. And therefore, this doorway that we're talking about is within every one of our possession because we get it through the word of God. Faith is the title deed we hold until we take possession. Just look at somebody and say, I've got a title deed. Amen. Haven't taken possession yet, but I'm going to. And when it says that faith is the evidence of things hoped for, which is the next clause, it uses a very strong word. In the Greek, it means evidence that you can take into court to prove your case. So not only is faith the title deed, it is the evidence you can take into court to prove your case. Now watch, watch, because this is going to get good now. And listen to what the scripture again says. It is the evidence of things hoped for, or rather the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of, say it, things not seen. We believe and we have been taught because our educational system has no place in it for faith that if you don't see it, it's not real. I just got through telling you in the word of God that it is real because you've got a title deed. Amen. Amen. And listen to it. What it literally means is, and I want you to see this, the word things in that verse right there literally means that which has already been done, a deed, an accomplished fact. It also means that which is or exists. Now, you say, I don't see it. According to the word God used, it exists. It's already done. We have these little neat senses, uh, or tenses rather, that we put our verbs into, past, present, future, all of this future perfect, all of this other kind of stuff. Listen, God said that regarding his promise to you, it already exists. What you're asking for is already real. Amen. You're not, and this is why, this is why I have taught you here, faith in prayer is not going to God and twisting God's arm and saying, God, I need you to change your mind. I need you to, I need you to step in here and, and make me get a raise. No, God's already made you get a raise. It already exists. God, I I just was diagnosed with this terrible disease. I need you to come do a miracle. What I'm trying to tell you is God knew you would need that miracle before you were ever born and that he provided for it on Calvary, which is why Peter says, by his stripes, you were healed. It's already done. I need somebody to say concerning their need, it is already done done. I've got a word for somebody in this house right now. What you're worrying over is already done. God took care of it. It's supplied in the name of Jesus. Faith is your title deed. Amen. Of things that he's already done for you. Not what he's going to do. It's already finished. 
<laughs> Hallelujah to the Lamb. In other words, faith is the title deed that proves ownership of the things that God has already done that you can use as evidence in heaven's court to prove your ownership of what you desire God to do in your life. All you got to do is walk in there with a promise of God and say, here it is, Lord. And the Lord said, I agree. Lower court may have tried to rob you of it, but now I want you to know as the supreme judge of the universe, I'm making a ruling in your favor. You have the legal right to walk in prosperity and blessing and anointing and favor and healing. Woo, somebody ought to say amen. Now, this is what is significant. There is one very noticeable thing that stands out in this incredible 11th chapter of Hebrews about faith. And when you first look at it, it seems a mystery. At first glance, it is somewhat enigmatic. It is paradoxical. Uh, I used to look at this years ago, and I would read Hebrews 11, and it would seem to contradict what the definition of faith was. What I'm referring to is that while this chapter mentions faith time and time again, and I think there are at least 25 places that faith is mentioned here in the 11th chapter, you will notice that after it says that these individuals walked in faith, it goes to great length to tell the stories that describe the faith of these individuals and the works or the actions that were taken by them as champions of faith. And the reason this is paradoxical is we have always been taught faith and works are two different realms, two different worlds. If it's works, it's not faith. If it's faith, it's not works, right? Okay, Faith has always been thought of as this esoteric thing that exists in our mind or in our heart. But when you see it and when it has to do with, with, with the reality, it's no longer faith. And neither is it faith if you're working to try to make it happen. But that's not really what this chapter is communicating. Faith is always thought of as what you believe, but works are about what you do. And we know, and, we, and, and one reason that, that this dichotomy exists in terms of our understanding of faith and works is because we go to great lengths to stress you can't be saved by your human works. You can't. It's faith that saves you. Amen. And it's God's grace that is at work. You can't do enough good deeds to get to heaven. I just need an amen right there. You, you can't, and people say all the time that uh, I'm a good person and I don't think I would be lost. What they fail to realize is they came into this world already lost. They were born to Adam and Adam is lost and Eve was lost. And, and until you turn your heart over to God and allow the atonement of his sacrifice to cover your transgressions, you came here Lost. Nobody has to teach you how to sin. Nobody has to tell a child how to lie or disbehave. We're born that way. Amen. 
That's just the way that it is. And, and so good people that we know will say things like, but I'm a good person. I don't murder. I don't cheat. I don't lie, whatever. You were born as a sinner. You need God's grace. Amen. Just simply surrender your life to God because works won't save you. But in trying to make that case, I fear that we oftentimes, as a consequence, fail then to understand the other side of what faith actually is. In distancing faith from works on the merit matter of salvation, we sometimes have a separated faith from works on the matter of daily practical living and walking out the extraordinarily blessed life. Here's what I mean. The Bible uses all of these stories in Hebrews 11 to make this point. It illustrates their faith by their works. Mm, I need somebody to say amen. Amen. Hebrews 11 not only mentions they were people of faith, which lets you know they believe, but then it tells you that their works demonstrated their faith. And so I want to look at seven spiritual laws quickly. Number one, they, I call these the seven laws of faith. Faith law number one, faith without works is dead. James 2, 14, 20 and verse 26, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? What the writer James is saying is you can feel real good. You see somebody in need and say, I bless you in Jesus' name. I bless you with a coat on your back and I bless you with a, with a, 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 a meal in your stomach and good shoes on your feet. But if that's all you do is just say that and keep on going, that's faith without works. Hello. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James said, show me your faith without your works, but I'll show you my faith by my works. That's a key and important statement. Show, I'll show you my faith by my works. Amen. And he says, you believe there is one God. And he addresses this whole business of just believing without any action corresponding to the belief. He said, well, let me tell you, you're in the same category as the demons because they believe in one God and tremble. That's not getting them anywhere, is it? But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Amen. These verses clearly tell us that faith must be accompanied by action. I need somebody to say that. My faith must have action in it. That is why this passage of Holy Scripture that is universally regarded as being the greatest teaching on faith that exists not only mentions faith but spends most of the time talking about the works of the individuals it declares who have faith. And so James chapter 2 verses 17 verse 20 verse 26 solves the riddle then, doesn't it? of Hebrews 11 for us by explaining the irrevocable link that exists between faith and works. No faith 
Amen. No works. You can say you have faith all day long, but you don't. Faith and works must go together. And so faith law number one, faith without works is dead. Faith law number two, your works must be in alignment with what you are believing. That is, you've got to do something consistent with your faith ideals. If you believe you're going to be an attorney, you know what you got to do? You got to go to university and study law. Don't tell me you believe you're going to go to that you're going to be an attorney and you won't even fill out an application to go to university. Hello, somebody. If you believe you're going to be a doctor, you've got to study medicine and anatomy and chemistry. You can't sit home and watch TV. You've got to take action that is commensurate with your faith objectives. If you're believing that you're going to be an engineer, you've got to study math and so forth. You don't need to be learning how to be a CPA or a carpenter if what your calling is and your faith is, is to be a doctor. Amen. You understand what I'm saying? Or to go to law school and be an attorney. Your faith must be in alignment and your works must match that. Faith law number three, the actions you take, which is your work, should be directive and contribute in a positive way toward what you're believing for. Many people act in a way that doesn't contribute to their faith goals. They may be in university, but they're doing other stuff that works against them. Let me explain it like this. If you believe God is going to protect you and keep you, you mustn't do things that work against you being protected. Like leaving your door unlocked at night. Not in today's world. Oh, I believe God's going to protect me. So you go driving down one of these Texas roads and you see a train coming and it's 10 feet from the crossing. I believe God's going to protect me. And you just step on the gas pedal and shoot across the, the railroad track. You're asking for God to just say, you got that one by yourself is what you're... You understand? You must not only have works that are a part of your faith and your works must be in alignment, but your works also must be directive and contribute in a positive way toward what you're believing. For example, concerning what I just said, I've heard people say, oh, if it's not my time to go, I'm not going to die. Don't you believe that? You can die before your time. That's in the Bible. You didn't know that. Let me read a verse to you, Ecclesiastes, amen. 7.16, do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? There's one you didn't even know was there. You can be so wicked, God said, I've had enough, and it wasn't even your time to go yet. On the other hand, you can be so foolish, God said, I tried to help him, but he wouldn't let me. Like Boudreaux, who joined the army and was sent to jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia. He complained about everything, complained about the sergeant, complained about the barracks, complained about the training, complained that his boots were not the right size, complained about the food, complained about his uniform not fitting just right, complained about the cot he was sleeping on. And finally, the big day came when he was to do his first jump. And they were instructed to jump, count to 10, pull the ripcord, float down to earth, and trucks would be waiting to pick them up and take them back to the base. Plane took off, and they started jumping. It came Boudreaux's turn. He jumped. He pulled the ripcord after counting to 10. Nothing happened. 
They heard him as he went by the others grumbling. Yeah, and I bet they don't have them trucks down there when I get to the ground either. You better be worried about more than whether there are trucks down there. You need to take actions that help you. Faith law number four, your work should be informed by biblical wisdom, directed by biblical wisdom and understanding. You can't just believe, believe anything and claim that it is faith. It must be backed by God's word. I believe the sun's going to rise in the west tomorrow and settle in the east. I doubt it. I got faith. I don't care how much faith you have. That's not backed by the word of God. That's unwise faith. Say unwise faith. And your actions work against what you're seeking. If you believe God wants to bless you and make you prosper, are you saving seed money? Can I get real with you right now? To invest, or are you spending everything that's coming in? Some people routinely spend 10 to 15 to 20% more each month than they make. They, and if they get a raise, they're going to just adjust their budget and spend another 10 or 15 or 20% more. Always upside down. Always spending their seed and never wondering why they're not having a harvest. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 8, 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives it to you. Tell me. God. Say God. Say it. Who gives this to you? God. What does he give you? The power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God swore it. God declared it. Now then faith has got to be accompanied by works. You say, I believe what God said. Just believing it is not enough. You got to act on it. You see that word power? Do you know what that means in the Hebrew? It means the wealth to get wealth. That's literally what it means. God gives you the wealth to get wealth. What's he referring to? That what God is putting in your hands is not meant to all be spent. Part of that is your next harvest. You need to be investing. You need to be saving. Hello, somebody. You can't work for the man the rest of your life and think you're going to get ahead. I need a better amen than that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Psalms 126, 4 through 6. Bring back our captivity, O Lord. As the streams in the south, this is the prayer that Israel prayed when they came out of Babylonian captivity. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Temple was destroyed. They took stones and they put it into the fertile fields. And now, 70 years later, they're back Actually, 68 years later, 68 and a half years later, the land is overgrown with thorns and, and it's wild and it's primitive and it's wilderness and the fertile fields are no longer producing and they're praying, God, bring back our captivity. We're free, but we're not free. And I know people that are free, but are not free. I know people, you may live in America, but you're still in bondage. Hello, somebody. And that doesn't please God. God wants you to live the extraordinarily blessed life. Hello. And so he goes on to pray. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. The King James says, bearing precious seed. What that refers to is when Israel got back 
from captivity. For the first period of time, they had a little allowance supplied by Cyrus and they moved back to their homeland and they began to rebuild. But that money was running out. That food was running out. He gave them seed that they could plant. And you know what you could do when your seed is running out? You could say, mama, go bake some more bread with this seed. Go fix another meal with this. Why? Because it's winter time and the kids are crying and your wife's looking at you saying, you got to get something for these kids. They're hungry. They're sick. And you say, but mama, I can't touch this. This is the seed that's going to be our next harvest. But, but, but daddy, I got to have something to fix for these babies. And you know what happens? Daddy is crying because he knows that he's not able to meet the need of his family at the level that he wants to provide for them. And so he he keeps that seed there and mama says I'm going to go out and take something and no no he steps up and says you can't that's our seed we won't have a harvest if you take that seed and so she's weeping the kids are crying daddy I'm hungry and he goes forth weeping bearing precious seed and plants it the Bible said if you will resist your desire to spend everything you have if you will save seed in your life you will doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing your sheaves with you. I need an amen from somebody. We've made that a practice here at CT. We're getting ready to build a building. You ask us to. I want you to know I've sent out a memo. We're cutting out spending here. I mean, down to the bare bones because they've asked us to raise another 654000 And I, I told you we're going to build that building. By the grace of God, we're going to do it. And that means no raises. That means nothing superfluous. We're cutting it down, paring it to the bone, and asking you to help us and continue to give sacrificially. I'm giving sacrificially. Half my income is what I I've been giving, but listen to what I'm trying to tell you. Will God honor that? Yes, because that's the seed for the next generation. That's the seed for a new building. And I've got a prophetic word I want to speak over this house. God said it, not me. You will doubtless come again with rejoicing. God's going to honor your sacrifice. Do you hear what I'm saying? I just feel like I need to shout it out loud. God's going to honor your sacrifice. Woo! Hallelujah, hallelujah. Faith law number five, faith will always be tested, always. Amen. One of the biggest tests of anyone's faith in Scripture is found in the story of Abraham when God tells him to take the boy Isaac, that is his faith child, that is the one through which he will be blessed and the nation of Israel will be birthed. Tells him to offer him as a sacrifice upon Mount Moriah. Talk about a test. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. Look at how the Bible talks about Abraham's works by faith. See it? Faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. I didn't say if he was tested. And I want you to know there's no if in whether you're going to be tested or not. You will be tested. You want to move to the next level. There's a big when you're going to be tested between you and there. You will be tested. And he said when he was tested, you know what he did? He offered up Isaac. And when he did that, he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son 
of whom it is said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. How does faith come? By hearing. Faith cometh by hearing and that by a word from God. When you start stretching your faith to believe, I need you to understand there will come a test. Not if a test comes, there will come a test. And notice what the test was. Abraham, take what I've given you and offer him for a sacrifice. But God, wait a minute. That's the boy you said that my blessing would come from. That's, that's the very thing you said would, would cause the nation of Israel to be birthed. And I would be the father of many nations. But you know what Abraham did? When he was tested, he kept his actions consistent. His works continued to be consistent with his faith. He said, I don't know how it's going to happen, but God, if you told me to offer this boy and he's the only son I've gotten through him, my seed will be called and, and the nation will come. If you, you told me I'm going to offer him because if you've got to raise him from the dead, you'll raise him from the dead. And that's what Abraham said. Wait a minute, beloved. That's what's going to happen to you before you shout too soon. Let me tell you, every dream God gave you is going to be tested and God will probably ask for you to sacrifice it and if you hold on to it, do you know what's going to happen? It's going to die anyway. But if you step out in faith and keep your works consistent with your faith, God is going to come through. God will come through. God. Oh, I feel the anointing of the Holy Ghost here. You don't look at the impossibilities because your mind will go to calculating if I kill this boy the dream will die. No, you don't look at impossibilities. You don't look at things through the natural eyes. All you do is say, if God said it, that's good enough for me. Amen. I've been tested. I've had my faith tested and I'm about to close. I've been in ministry. You see me talk about faith. I've been to where my faith is stretched. And I remember before I came here, I was in a revival meeting years ago in a city in the state of Indiana. And uh, that's all I'll say. I won't even identify the city. And the pastor, we were having a great revival. We had over, over a thousand people receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We had baptized, I don't even know how many people we had baptized. People were coming, giving their hearts to God. And the pastor had a cousin in the same city. And his cousin had conflict with this pastor. And they both had radio programs, and the pastor had a program at a certain time, and just before that, his cousin had a radio program, and they were both pastors, as I mentioned, in the same city, and there was great animosity, and that pastor's cousin took me to task because that church started exploding. I had never met the man, and this guy went on the radio, called my name 19 times in one one-half-hour broadcast and did everything he could to destroy my credibility. Said I was there making money. What you don't know is that, is, and this is the way I conducted my ministry, things were different. I didn't ask people for offerings. I never took up an offering the whole time I was a, an evangelist. They would receive offerings, but the churches wouldn't even give them to the evangelists that were speaking for them. The pastor himself in that city boasted to me and laughed and he said, man, you've been good for our, us financially. I said, how is that? He said, 
this is back in the days of cassette tapes. He said, we sold more cassette tapes than this whole meeting will cost. It's paid for billboards, advertising, your salary, which was negligible. Uh, Just be real honest with you. And he said, we've never had to take a dime of the offerings to put into this revival or give you. Well, I didn't say anything. I just smiled. But right then I told God, if I ever pastor and I take up an offering for somebody, I'm giving it to who the people gave the money to go to. I'm not going to keep it for myself. There's a curse in that. You don't muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. It's what the Bible said. But I just left it and smiled and went on and said, that's good. I never got a cent from the sale of a cassette tape. And they sold multiplied thousands of them in that revival meeting. And this guy's boasting about it. But now his cousin is on the radio saying, I'm there getting all the money. And I'm thinking, you just don't know, do you? Amen. I'm having to pay my own airfare in here out of that little salary they're giving me because I had a home in Louisiana and I'm talking about a church and a lot of money came through in that revival and I went to God and I said, God, why is it this way? Up until then, I was just a little blissfully happy evangelist and never thought anything, never realized there were people out there in ministry that could be jealous. That's why today when I meet saints that have been hurt, I can smile and say, I've been there too. I've been hurt in church just like some of you have and your mess does become your message and your test does become your testimony and I know how to minister to people who had faith problems because somebody in church heard them I've been there I've been wounded in church myself but the grace of God kept me because I never allowed my works to be stopped I kept on believing and kept on acting like I believed and kept on doing the works that would accompany faith. I kept on doing the right thing. Amen. And now, all these years later, I look back. I remember during that crisis, I asked God, God, what are you doing? They're destroying my ministry. And God said, good. (laughs) And I thought, gee, thanks. I can't even get any sympathy from you, can I? Amen. They sent letters out all across the United States calling me by name, and that was their accusation that I was taking people's money and I wasn't getting a dime of it. And I never fought, never lifted my hand, never explained a thing to anybody. And I said like David, if the Lord has bidden you to curse me, you curse me. I'll let God deal with it. Sometimes you need to let God fight your battles. Amen. I know what it's like to be lied on and cheated and talked about. Hello. And the Lord said, the reason I'm letting your ministry be destroyed is because I don't want you to have your ministry. I want you to have my ministry. And it changed everything for me. And that is why after 47 years in ministry, I have never had a Richard Hurd ministry. I'm not knocking those that do, that use their name, but don't look for me to. There's nothing wrong with it, I guess, but the simple truth of the matter is God spoke so clearly to me, I don't want my ministry. I want his ministry. I need him. I need him. 
And I'm talking to somebody right now. Your faith is being tested. And what you got to do is keep on walking out the same thing. Keep on moving the same direction. Don't let your works be stopped because faith without works is dead. Just keep on living it in spite of what your eyes are seeing. And The moment your actions are works begin to be the opposite of your declaration of faith is the moment you slide into a hopeless situation. Faith law number six, and I'm done. When your faith is tested, you must fight the good fight of faith. First Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You've got to fight. Just tell somebody there comes a time when you have to fight. Not people. They're not the enemy. They're the victims of the enemy. They may even be the instruments of the enemy, but they are not the enemy. And you can't give up. Just say, I can't give up. I made a decision. I'm going to keep on moving forward because whether or not I receive my miracle depends upon what I do when I'm tested. So I got to keep walking it out. Some of you've even made pledges in this building campaign and then you hit a brick wall. Walk it out, walk it out, walk it out, walk it out. Your blessing depends upon it. Faith law number seven and I close. How do you fight the good fight of faith? You fight the good fight of faith by continuing to do the works that must accompany faith that faith can be alive and not dead. And this is why works complete your faith. James 2 and 22, do you see that faith was working together with his work, speaking of Abraham, and by works, faith was made perfect. The Greek word for perfect means complete. It is a mathematical term. It means to be lacking, and whatever the number is that are lacking, for that amount to be added to now make it the full number required. Your works complete your faith. Faith without works is dead. Your works with your faith are what complete what is missing in your faith.